I praise the Lord for the things that we've been learning together. And uh, I never know what to expect, where we go, but invariably the Lord blesses, and I praise him for that. And we look for a blessing again tonight. Uh, a couple of things. I think they're going to link the sermons that have been recorded on the website at the church here. They're also on mine. And uh, eventually, in a few moments, I have actually two handouts to give to everyone. I hope I have enough. I brought 30. Maybe we better give one to a family, but I think there might be enough for everyone here. But um, of what I shared last night, uh, some of what I shared last night, I wasn't able to get all the way through to the end. It's really quite shocking. That's all I can say. It's, it's, it's really quite amazing what, what, what is there. So I wanted you to have it in your hands and also the little document on uh, honoring God through keeping the Sabbath. I really think that those are so important that they are worth spending extra time with. So I brought those documents and we'll pass them out in a moment. Before we go further, I want to have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to come together this evening to further study, Lord, the subject of revival. Lord, uh, earlier this week and perhaps last week, uh, we've discussed the fact that revival and reformation go together. And sometimes as we, we seek to hear your voice and to obey and to walk in your footsteps, uh, the going can get hard. And sometimes, Lord, we can be confused. And therefore, Lord, we want to take some time to understand more of this matter of how you save us and how you change us. Lord, if there's been any blessing at all so far, it's been because you have worked through me, often, I suspect, in spite of me. We need your help again. Please forgive all of us, Lord, of our sins. It's not a matter of whether we've sinned. It's really a matter of how much we've sinned. Apply the blood of Jesus liberally and empty us, Lord, of ourselves. Help us to die to self that we might be filled with the Spirit and we might hear from you and our lives might be changed. I thank you, Lord, for each person is here, that is here. Might each person go home better understanding you, more in love with you. I ask this in Jesus' name with gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Amen. As we get started this evening, I'd like to talk just very briefly about the fact that in history, one of the wonderful things that God has blessed planet Earth with is godly wives. Uh, this evening I want to talk about, uh, on your schedule, where it says reveling in God's mercy has to do with pardon and receiving Christ's righteousness. But by way of introduction, um, I want to talk about the fact that uh, if you look at, for example, we all sing the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. That was written by uh, John Newton. Uh, he was born in 1725, uh, 13 days before his seventh birthday, his mother died and he became extremely bitter. His father was a sea captain and it wasn't too long before he began going to, to sea with his father. Uh, I believe that began at the age of 11. At the age of 19, um, he was forced to join a, a British uh, ship 
against his wish, um, a man of war, the HMS Harwick. And because conditions were so bad, he deserted. Uh, they caught him, they flogged him, they demoted him. And life was so unbearable that he chose to be sold as a slave and there was further abused. It's interesting that while he was there, a friend of his father's came along and rescued him and took him back to England. And eventually, the one who had been abused as a slave became the slave trader and began hauling human cargo back to England. Now, as you know, um, sailors are not, are not known to have the, the kindest language and the, the kindest of habits the kindest habits. But John Newton could exceed all of them in his swearing, in his, uh, in his actions. In fact, he was the one that would lead all the other seamen down to the hold to, to rape and abuse the, the slaves that they, they, they couldn't resist. Truly a horrible man in every way, and he saw that. And, and when he writes the hymn, you know, who saved a wretch like me, he knew that he was a wretch in, in every way. You know, when he was a slavery, he was thrilled about having been freed. But his later actions showed that though we can be free on the outside, we can be still completely enslaved on the inside. Finally, during a storm, um, came to know Jesus. He thought he was going to die, and he cried out, Have mercy on me. And as he said that, he remembered the prayers of his mother, began reading, and his life changed, and eventually he would be the pastor of the church in Olney. And there, uh, he used to write a, a hymn with William Cowper, who also was a member of his church, along with uh, Wilberforce. They would write a hymn for their Wednesday night meeting, and Amazing Grace, I believe, came out of one of those uh, Wednesday night meetings. A wonderful hymn, you know? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And sometimes, in our walk with Jesus, um, we wonder, at some point, you know, after we've struggled so long, how God could love us, how God could keep forgiving us, how God can, can change us. Uh, but God did change him. And though at one time he was a, a brutal man, a swearing man, a man that, that others were afraid of, he became the most gentle and, and loving Christian you could imagine. By the way, he had the most amazing marriage. Uh, he actually wrote a letter to his wife almost every day. And uh, he sometimes thought he loved her too much. And uh, he said if he went into a room... Where she was absent, it was as if there was something missing. He says, you know, every few moments, you know, not many minutes go by when I'm thinking of you. God brought about a, a complete change, and uh, it was a wonderful blessing. Another person that comes to mind is the man John Bunyan. Some of you are acquainted with John Bunyan. He wrote the, the, uh, the, the book Pilgrim's Progress, which is a wonderful book and uh, even recommended to us in, in, in the spirit of prophecy. Uh, John Bunyan... Uh, he didn't have the advantages of John Newton, but he had one wonderful advantage. He had a, a Christian wife. And this wife would speak to him of his godly father, and she had two books from her father on how to be a strong Christian. And out of her prayers, God led him on a journey that went for a long time until finally one day he realized that his righteousness was up in heaven instead of in his behavior. Uh, John Bunyan did everything and anything under the sun to have an experience with Jesus. But um, nothing worked. Nothing worked. Uh, there was a time when, when he studied his Bible and people admired him and he enjoyed that, but he realized that he was nothing more than a, than a whitened sepulcher, just a, a painted you know, hypocrite, 
I think that's the wording that he used. Anyway, um, one day he came into contact with some women, three women. He was working on the streets and he overheard them talking and he realized that they knew an experience that he didn't know about. Uh, it was as if they had a, knew the sunny side of a mountain or something. I don't remember the exact words, but he, he realized they had something that he didn't have and so he, he began pursuing that. At one point, a, a lady who he believed was the worst woman in town said she, he was the worst man in town and that shocked him. Uh, and so God just led him bit by bit further and further until finally one day as he was actually walking across a yard, he suddenly heard a voice that said, your righteousness is up in heaven. And that changed his life. He said not only did, did his struggles go away, but also temptation went away. And uh, he would later write that marvelous book while he was in prison. He was in prison for many years. He could have gone home any time had he promised us not to preach. But he was so convinced that he needed to obey God that he would not agree to anyone telling him that he could not preach. And so uh, he was blessed by a, a praying wife. He discovered Jesus. And he said, you know, he's discovered that my good frame doesn't add to my righteousness. My bad frame doesn't take away. You know, my righteousness is up in heaven. And so he, he wrote his, his wonderful book. And so this evening I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the righteousness in Jesus and, and, and what he does on our behalf. So uh, let's, let's spend some time and uh, look at that. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And it's appropriate chapter. It says there, And a certain man had two sons. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Luke 15, 11. It says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. This son had been busy working on his father's farm. He had an older brother. And uh, he felt that there was something better uh, that he didn't have on the farm. And so he asked his father to, to uh, give him his portion. And it says, not many days after the younger son gathered everything together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The first thing I noticed that uh, he went to a far country. He never thought that things would turn bad for him. I think he felt pretty confident that with this money he would do fine. But it was a far country, and there it says he wasted. He wasted what he had on prodigal living. He gave him himself. He, he wasted all the blessings that had been bequeathed him by his father. You know the story as well as, as I do. But when he'd spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. All of us have had our moments, I think, where we have thought we were making good decisions and later discovered we made terrible mistakes. And it usually happens when we are younger. But praise God, God doesn't give up on us. It says, He went, and a severe famine began, and he began to be in want. Then he went, and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. 
And there, instead of having an easy life, he was sent to the fields to feed the pigs, which was the last thing that he would have ever wanted to do. Probably had someone spoken to him and said, someday you're going to be a poor man working, feeding pigs, he would have said that that's not true. He would have never made the decision that brought that along. But when we go to a far country, we cannot control what happens. Things happen that are beyond our control. And in his case, it was a famine. Um, and so he went and he joined himself. And there, the only thing he could do was, was to feed these pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. But no one gave him anything. What he'd been hoping to receive, no one gave him anything. It says, eventually, what did he do? He came to himself. He realized he was making a terrible mistake. And he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. He began thinking about what life had been like in the past, and he realized that that it had actually not been quite so bad. It had been pretty good. He said, even the servants have enough to eat and to spare, but me, I am hungry, I am perishing. And in verse 18 we find, he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your sons. Make me like one of your hired servants. As he thought about his situation, he realized that probably he had so offended his father that uh, his father would not consider him as a member of the family anymore. He would only perhaps accept him back as one of the servants. And so he began memorizing the speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. How many of you ever wonder if you are worthy, even when you're trying to do what you're supposed to do? You know, it's, it's hard when mistakes have been made and you've tried. And, and, and let's be honest with each other. We don't always get forced into our mistakes. We often choose the things that we get into. He had chosen to go. He had wasted all the blessings that his father had given him. And so he comes back with his speech. I'm no longer worthy. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he rose and he came to his father. But when he was what? Still a great way off. He hadn't come home yet. He was still a, a long ways away. And we don't read anything at all about his having gone and found some new clothes and, and cleaned himself up. I remember when I used to work at the farm at Andrews. And I discovered after a time that I could take a shower, but people still knew if they smelled very carefully, they knew where I worked because it just gets right into your skin. Did you know that? There was a time when I thought actually that my hair was curly because of that. I'm not sure, but that's probably not true. But the point is, is, that, is that he came back feeling unworthy, looking unworthy, smelling unworthy. But before he even came close, 
we see that the father is responding. It says, but when his, he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and said to his son from a safe distance, I'm glad to see you're here. Here's some soap. There's the, there's, the, there's, the, there's the stream. Clean yourself up. And by the way, there's some clothes over there that we stored should you ever come. And when you clean yourself up, we'll take a chance. We'll have a bit of an evaluation to decide if we really want to take a chance with you again. Right? No. It says he came, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. And lo and behold, he even kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, he began his speech, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, verse 21, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now remember, the, the, the speech had started, I've sinned, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He stops him right there. He doesn't even let him finish the sentence. But the father said to his servants, bring out a robe, right? Bring out no, bring out the best robe, right? Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now, I find this story just an amazing story because here's this father who apparently not only was willing to come run, but he had been looking, he had been looking for that son, I believe, day after day. He'd gone to a far distant country. He had taken half, you know, of, of all the assets of the farm with him. He'd wasted all of them, and not even for a good project, hadn't donated it to a minister or anything like that. He'd been spent in, in unseemly ways. And yet when he comes smelling like he had been working in a pigsty, the father runs out, puts his arms around him, kisses him, and then what does he do? He says, get out the best robe, because he, he wanted to not expose him. He wanted to protect him. That wasn't just a boy, that was his son. And I think he wanted to give a message to his son that I love you. And so far as I'm concerned, nothing has changed between us. And it says uh, to put a, a ring on his hand. In my mind, when I read the story, it, it signifies the fact that, that he was a part of the family. No doubt about it. You are a part of the family. You're not going to be continued. And when he said put sandals on his feet, there, there's two things that strike me. I know one is that servants didn't wear sandals sometimes. So he was saying, you're not going to be just a, a servant in the family, but in my own simplistic way, I have a job for you. Something more than just walking around the farm. And, and I believe that this evening as we sit here, in great ways or small ways or, or whatever the case might be, any time we choose to pursue our own will, we are going off to a far distant country. And God is looking and God is wooing and, 
And as we're going to see later, God sometimes allows difficult things to happen because he doesn't want us to be lost. And when we come back, we find that God is, is there and the first thing he does is he wants to put a best robe, right? The best robe of righteousness around our shoulders. And he wants us to know that we're part of his family and by the way, I have a job for you to do. And he puts the sandals, the, the gospel, you know, the, the feet shod with the, the, the shoes of the gospel on our feet because he wants to use us. I don't personally understand myself why God does that. I remember just sharing my own testimony that when I was a, a, uh, a young person, some of you, many of you may have known my folks, uh, lived at Andrews, taught at Andrews, my dad. Um, I never once saw any questions in my parents' life as to whether God was real. You know, they, my parents were both committed Christians the whole time. Um, and I went to baptismal classes as a 12-year-old and I was raised with, with all the blessings of living literally on campus across the field from the cafeteria. You couldn't get closer to campus and PMC if you wanted to, almost. Uh, but yet, and, and I was a highly regarded Christian on, uh, growing up. When I say highly regarded, people kind of looked up to me, whatever that means. And when I was a junior in college, they made me the, the leader of the uh, campus ministry. It was called ACYA back then. And um, I preached Friday night Vespers. I preached uh, the Sabbath morning sermon at PMC. But it's interesting that, that between my junior and senior year, someone gave me a little book called The Life of Victory by Mead McGuire. How many of you read that book? He's an Adventist author. How many have read that book? No one. I'm shocked. That's probably one of the best books that's ever been written on how to know victory in the Christian life, written by an Adventist. Uh, it's a study of the book of Romans and the book of Steps to Christ. Wonderful, wonderful book. Anyway, Mead McGuire, M-A-C-G-U-I-R-E, Mead MacGuire. Yeah, or I can get it to you. One of the way I'll put it on on, on the page with the sermons. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You might be able to, but I can get you a PDF. That's available. He also wrote a book called Lambs Among Wolves. That's wonderful too. Rose just read that, and she's not finished with it yet, but she loves it. She'd like to make copies to be able to share them as much as she can. But the point is, someone shared this book with me about victory. And the more I read about victory, the more I realized I didn't know what victory was all about. You know, I had gone through the motions, but, but I realized that there was something amiss. Now remember, I was already sharing in front and preaching sermons and everything, but the more I thought about it, and the more I strived for it, the more I realized it was not something that Dan knew about. And I still remember that on September 7, it would have been in 1977, uh, I got on my knees and um, I think it was 77 or 78, one of those days, but I know it was November 7. We were in uh, Lebanon, New Hampshire, and my folks said, we need to go over to a uh, prayer meeting. Do you want to come with us? I said, no, I have to give the first sermon for, for the Friday, e I need to give the sermon for the first Friday night Vespers of of, of, of the school year at Andrews, I need to work on my talk. And I remember still getting on my knees and saying, Jesus, I love you very much, but apparently I'm so bad I'll never go to heaven. I said that honestly. I really believe that. I, I just was so frustrated with my experience. 
But then God put some words in my, in my mind, in my heart. Except Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And he said, Dan, you can claim my perfect life in the place of your mistakes and your failure, and I'll take your mistakes on me. And my life changed in a moment. I got up from that prayer rejoicing, and I've been rejoicing in a Savior ever since then. And I don't know if, it, if I needed to get to the point where I had given up on myself or what. But it was only when I had truly given up that I could do anything to get into heaven that I finally saw Jesus for all that he is. And my life has changed ever since then. And I will tell you something, that even when we are doing our best, our best is not good enough to get us into heaven. Did you hear me? Salvation is not by work. Salvation is not by works plus Jesus, it is by Jesus from beginning to end. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be in awe that we're even there. Did you know that? I don't believe there's going to be even one person say, did you see how well I did when I was down on earth? Not even a single person, because when we see Jesus and we, and we, and we think about the miracle that he's worked in our lives, we will be taking our crowns off, you know, and, and saying, you know, we'll be worshiping. That's the bottom line. And so um, this evening I want to talk a little bit or share a little bit about what the Bible says about this matter of, of how we are accepted before God. And then uh, we'll talk just for a moment about the older brother, if that's okay. And that's when we'll pass out the other little things. But anyway, uh, if you want to, open up your little booklet. And I actually want to have you start with Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. We're going to read verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then Romans 3. We'll just look at a, a few verses. Romans chapter 3. It says there, starting in verse 10, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit, etc. Okay? It says there is none righteous. No, not one. And Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not even one who has in any way, in any way done right. Now going back to Isaiah chapter 53. I don't like to just read quotations. I want to make sure we start with the Bible. Starting in verse, well we can start in verse 1. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is asking this in amazement. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty 
that we should desire him. Okay? Jesus was sent in very humble, humble circumstances by God's choice. And then it speaks of how we relate to him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he had a hard lot. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And Isaiah uses the the we word, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yes, we esteemed him stricken. Notice, smitten by God. In other words, the people of his day said, actually, it's God that's doing this. He's not a good man. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Okay? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, by the pain that he endured on the cross, we have been healed. Jesus did that for each one of us. Do we ever think about what he endured for us? It's because of what he did that we have the hope of having new life. Look, if you would, in your booklets at a few quotations. It says there, line 623, No deep-seated love for Jesus can dwell in the heart that does not see and realize its own sinfulness. The soul that is transformed by grace will admire his divine character. But if we do not see our own moral deformity, it is unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and the excellence of Jesus. The less we see to esteem in ourselves, the more we shall see to esteem in the infinite purity and loveliness of our Savior. A view of our sinfulness drives us to him who can pardon. Jesus will accept us, for his word is pledged. As our substitute, he takes our guilt on his own soul and imputes his righteousness to the sinner. I still remember that prayer as if it were yesterday. When I truly heard, you know, God saying, you know, you can claim the perfection of Jesus is yours and he will take upon himself all of your mistakes. What an amazing, amazing trade. Not a fair trade at all, was it? Not a fair trade at all. Notice 632. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be what? Broken. How is it that Satan's power is broken when we realize that the gift of salvation is truly a gift based on 
Jesus? Why is his power broken? What is his leverage? How does, what is Satan's leverage when he's trying to, to, to get us to fall? What's the leverage? Something that struck me is found in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. It says there, it says, verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, Bruce produced in me all manner of evil desire. And verse 11, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. In other words, as long as we think we can somehow work our way into heaven, Satan gains the upper hand in our lives somehow. And so Satan, what? Romans 7, 7, verse um, 8 and verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Somehow when we know that our salvation is based on Jesus, I'll I'll use a, a different word, Satan is defanged. He doesn't have the ability to, uh, to bring the discouragement and the other things that he uses to cause us to fall away. Continue. You know these, some of these statements, but they're a blessing to repeat. It was possible for Adam before the fall to form a righteous character by obedience to God's law. But he failed to do this, and because of his sin, our natures are fallen, and notice, we cannot make ourselves righteous. Do any of you ever get frustrated that you're not making more progress? Have you forgotten that you cannot make yourself righteous? I share that because it's so easy when we're talking about revival and reformation and people say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. It's true, we must make a decision. But it is God working in us that will allow us to be able to do what we're wanting to do. We cannot do it apart from the power of God. Okay? Since we are sinful and unholy, we cannot perfectly obey the holy law. We have no righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. But Christ has made a way of escape for us. He lived on earth amid trials and temptations such as we have to meet. He lived a sinless life. He died for us, and now he offers to take our sins and give us his righteousness. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your Savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you are accepted before God, just as if what? You had not sinned. So someone tell me, how does God treat us when we have come to Jesus? What did we just read? as if we'd never sinned. Please tell me, if we are to treat people the way God treats us, how do we treat them? As if they had never sinned. Would you agree? I have this crazy idea that always goes through my mind. What if we actually attended a church where we treated each other the way that God treats us? And we treated each other as if when we come in the back door, we were all perfect. 
It doesn't mean that we're not trying to grow. But God somehow, he knows that, that actually there's more power in love than in condemnation. How many of you like to grow plants? You like to grow plants. Now, would you agree with me that to grow a nice plant, you take a lot of pesticide, make as strong a mixture as you possibly can, and you just pour it on those plants, right? On a regular basis. You don't do that? Why not? It would kill them, right? But when it comes to our relationship with God, God knows that there's a power in love that's stronger than anything else. And this amazing gift, when we know that we are fallen and we are far from God, when we know we could not possibly make it, the fact that God actually loves us and accepts us as if we had never made a single mistake, it truly is a life-changing thought and one that we need to remember frequently. And you know, I, I would venture to say that if you have accepted Jesus as your personal Savior and you are feeling discouraged, then you need to say to yourself, even possibly out loud, God loves me and he looks at me as if I never made a single mistake. Okay? That's why the gospel is good news. And I really believe that if our churches were what they could be, they would be the best place to go to. Now, I've talked about how we should live, haven't I? I'm not trying to give you a, 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 a watered-down form of Christianity here. I'm just saying that, that when we have a relationship with Jesus, the bottom line is, is we are accepted before God on the basis of Jesus, not on the basis of our behavior. And um, I would like to suggest that, and we'll get into this more tomorrow night, the night after, that when we are condemning people, we're actually condemning them for something that that actually they need us to put our arms around them and help them to take their eyes off of themselves and put their, their eyes on Jesus. We continue. 648. More than this, Christ changes the heart. We're going to look at more, more, more quotations on this and more from the Bible, but remember this. It is Christ that will change your heart. You cannot change your own heart. That's why, you know, we're told that we're dead in trespasses, that we need to be born again. It's because there's nothing that is resurrectable in and of ourselves. Christ changes the heart. Praise God when you feel discouraged. Just remember, as you pray and you ask God, Jesus will change your heart. Do not be discouraged. He abides in your heart by faith. Now, here's a really important sentence. Are, do, are you all looking at your booklet now? Do you all have a booklet tonight? Anyone missing a booklet? Everyone notices. This is critical. You are to maintain this connection with Christ by two things. By faith and what else? And continual surrender of your will to him. We talk about righteousness by faith, but I'd like to suggest that based on this quotation, it might be appropriate to say righteous by faith and constant surrender. Did you hear me? I am convinced that the reason there is as much stumbling is because we have faith, but we have not fully surrendered. And when we haven't fully surrendered, it leaves a window for Satan to come in and do his mischief. Okay? It says we are to maintain this connection with Christ by faith 
and the continual surrender of our wills to him. And so long as you do this, notice what it says. He may work in you, right? It doesn't say that. He will occasionally work in you. No, he will. There is the imperative. He will work in you to will and to do according to whose pleasure? His pleasure. Now, why do we need faith? Because we need to believe that God can do it. And why do we need to surrender? Because as he works to will and do of his pleasure, unless we are surrendered, how can his will and pleasure be done in our lives? Did you hear me? I believe that God has a perfect plan for each one of your lives. He has the ability to bring it off. But he can only do it if we trust him and if we surrender to him. I have living proof of it sitting here on the front row in front of me. I use Rose occasionally because she's just such an amazing gift. Could not have been more perfectly suited for me as a, as a partner and a best friend if I would have tried. Now, when she came along, I had to have faith, right, that God knew what he was doing. I had to have faith. But what good would faith have had had I not been willing to surrender and say, God, I recognize it, and yes, I'll, I'll, I'll accept Rose as my wife. Okay? God comes into your life and you say, God bless me, God bless me. And then when God reveals his will, unless we are prepared to surrender to that will, how can God bless us? And I can also tell you, the sooner you surrender, the sooner you enjoy the blessings. You know, Rose prayed for a long time about Dan. Dan was a slow learner. And uh, finally one day, you folks don't know this story, but one day she wrote me a letter. She proposed to me, believe it or not. I have to give some background, don't I? I was walking innocently. I had no idea what was going on. I walked down the sidewalk from James White to PMC, and, and uh, she was in front of me, and I stopped, and I had a short conversation with her. That was in 1999. I'm sorry. And then one year later, she's working at Apple Valley, and I walk through her line at the cash register, and she looks at me and says... I'm going to marry you someday. In, my mind. in her mind. In her mind. She says, I'm going to marry you someday. I didn't know what was going on. And she looked at me again and said, but you're, you don't know it. And that's true. I had no idea. And she prayed at that point. You know, for the next 11 years, Rose got the impression at some point Dan must not be available. So she kind of forgot about Dan. But then later, people reminded her that maybe Dan was available, who didn't know about her prayer, by the way. And just... Uh, one day, someone came and said, you need to talk with Rose. You need to communicate with her. This is Dan's paraphrase. Please understand. And so we had the most unromantic relationship for a while. She should be telling the story in greater detail. But anyway, eventually, she wrote me this amazing letter. She said, you want God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. I do too. And then she talked about how to know God's will. And then 10 points, how God had answered prayers and said, I believe, probably with some other things, that you know, God has called me to walk by your side. I just don't know the when. Was it like that, basically? Okay. And she said, but if you don't agree, just let me know. Thank you for the friendship. Well, I kind of fell off the chair, at least in my own mind. I wasn't expecting this. I had spent seven hours with her up to that point and two afternoons, and no lightning bolts had come at all. And uh, I prayed for two days. One was, is this God? And number two, is she an honest woman? Because if it was, I knew this was something serious. And finally, we did get on the phone, 
And within one week, I knew I wanted to marry her. No doubt about it. And, you know, the sensible Dan said, you should spend a year together so you can figure out if you can get along. But it was so clear that God was working. I had so much faith in God that I realized that it was best just to surrender. You notice what I'm saying? To surrender to his will. And you know what? Instead of waiting for a year to second guess whether God knew what he was doing, we got to enjoy the most amazing year while my mom was still alive. And God blessed. And and the point I'm making is when we surrender to God, God is so wise. Uh, She is so perfect for me. I mean, from everything, from where she grew up to ministry style to, to many other things. It shows me that God has a personal knowledge of us, a personal interest in us, a personal ability to bring us together in ways we could not imagine. But still, it's up to us to have faith. She had to write a courageous letter. God had impressed her. You need to write it because Dan doesn't know how I've been answering prayers in your life about him. And God confirmed that through someone else who just out of the blue said, you need to write him a letter and tell him exactly what you think. And so she did. I'm telling the story. I'm sorry, Rose. Anyway, uh, and so she wrote me this letter, and the rest is history. And, and I tell you what, I am so happy married because I had faith in God and because I kept surrendering. And if you want to know the blessings in the Christian life, you need to have faith in God, faith that he means good for you, and surrender to follow as he opens the way before you. Did you hear me? Because you can have faith in God, but if, if you're not willing to surrender and follow as he leads, you're not going to gain the blessings that he has in mind. Did you hear me? And so it says here that we maintain the connection by faith and by the continual surrender of our wills to him. And so long as you do this, he will work in you to will and do according to his good pleasure. Now notice, this comes from a letter written to a lady in line 657. My dear sister in Christ Jesus, you cannot keep yourself one moment. You are kept by the power of God through faith. Let your faith rest in his merits, rely upon his mercy, trust in the sufficiency of his grace to keep you every moment. How much is she told to do? It's trust, trust, trust all the way through. Never allow the enemy to obtain an advantage over you because you do not think you are good enough to be called a child of God. Of God. Does anyone here ever wonder if they're good enough to be a child of God? By faith, you are constantly to repose in the righteousness which God has provided you through his substitute, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay? And 669. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. God's boundless mercy is exercised towards those who are wholly undeserving. I want to... Just, just read one other quotation I have in another document I have. It's, she says, Ellen White, our condition is helpless and hopeless unless mercy is granted us daily. Okay? And then somewhere else. Here it is. Grace is an attribute of God shown to undeserving human beings. We did not seek after it, but it was sent in search of us. God rejoices to bestow his grace upon everyone who hungers for it. To everyone he presents terms of mercy, not because we are worthy, but because we are so utterly unworthy. 
Do you feel unworthy? Do you feel like you've really messed up? That's the reason why God loves you so much. That's why Jesus died. The point I'm trying to make is, as we are discussing revival, Satan works in many ways. On the one hand, he tells some people, you're too bad. God doesn't care. It's gone too long. You can't change. Or he'll say, you've made too many mistakes. It's proof that you're too weak. Don't even try. And I just want to say from the very beginning that when everything is said and done, you and I will be in heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross, not because of what we will ever do. Okay? And uh, I think we will be in awe, as I said. We will be in awe at what God did. Okay, we'll be in awe. Oh, I found it. I found it. It's right here. I thought. I'm wrong. doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, I wanted to share that this evening because people could get the wrong idea that I'm suggesting that we need to work our way into heaven. This isn't about working our way into heaven. I've told you many times that I love to do things for Rose because I'm married, not in order to become married. And if I make a mistake, I don't lose my married state, right? You know, Rose encourages me and God encourages us. Um, But how do we maintain the connection? By faith and constant surrender. That's not often uh, emphasized enough. But it's more than just faith. It's also a constant surrender to know and do as well. And he will come in and make the difference. Now in the story of the prodigal son, do you remember what happens after the son comes home? They're, they're busy celebrating his return and, and someone hears the noise, right? Who hears the noise? It's the older son. He never, le- he never left the farm, right? The older son never left the farm. And does he go and say, Father, I'm so glad that that, that which you've been concerned about has finally uh, been, uh, been addressed and, and, and the son has come back home? Does he say that? He says, you never did this for me. He's what? He's envious. He's been there on the farm, hasn't he? But I'd like to tell you something. Though his body was on the farm, his heart was in a distant country. His heart was somewhere else. And here's the danger. Sometimes we can be here, but our hearts can be somewhere else as well. And I think that the older son forgot what the church was all about or the farm was all about, and that was for, for the blessings to the family. And my brothers and sisters, when we really understand what God has done for us, we'll be thrilled that God is willing to do it for someone else. But we need to have a personal experience and remember who changes the heart. Jesus changes the heart. Who brings salvation? It's Jesus that also brings salvation. And for reasons I don't understand and in a way that I would never, I could never see myself doing to someone else, he says, I'll take your mistakes. I lived a perfect life. I never made a single mistake. You can claim perfection of my life as yours. Can you imagine that? Today God has said everything Jesus did, you can claim it as your own. Just think about that. Do you even feel right in doing that? Let's be honest. Do you easily say the perfection of Jesus I can claim as my own? Do you do that? That's what we're told to do and my response is if that's true then Jesus let me do something to let you know how grateful I am. And guess where the Father's heart was? 
It was with the son who wasn't home. And I believe when we do what really pleases Jesus, it will be that we uh, have a concern about others who don't know him yet. Now, I have two documents here. And uh, I want to make sure that, uh, that everyone gets one. And I just want to point out some things to you very briefly. These are what I shared with you last night. Because um, I know that if you don't have it in hand, um, it won't be the same. We're not going to look at the one on the Sabbath. But we're going to look at this for just a moment and then we're going to have prayer. Look at line one. 67. The church is like the unproductive tree which receiving the dew and the rain and the sunshine should have produced an abundance of fruit. Line 167. But on which the divine searcher finds nothing but leaves. Solemn thought for our churches. Solemn indeed for every individual. Marvelous is the patience and forbearance of God. Except thou repent, it shall be exhausted. The churches are institutions, and this was in the other book, will go from weakness to weakness, from cold formality to deadness, while they're saying, I am rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. Okay? Now just remember that thought, okay? 168. Talent, long experience, will not make men channels of light unless they place themselves under the bright beams of the Son of Righteousness, and are called and chosen and prepared by the endowment of the Holy Spirit. When men who handle sacred things will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, the Lord will lift them up. We must humble ourselves if we want to know God's blessings. Okay? And then, she gets more serious, 195. The end is near. We have not a moment to lose. Light is to shine forth from God's people in clear, distinct rays, bringing Jesus before the churches and before the world. God will give additional light and old truths will be recovered and replaced in the framework of truth. And wherever the labors go, notice what happens. They will triumph. Isn't that good news? We are, I'm sorry, maybe I didn't give you the line. I'm at about line 198. Thank you. As Christ's ambassadors, they are to search the air and every ray of light received is to be communicated to others, etc. Okay? She says, as we go, the truth will, uh, they will triumph. In other words, we can count on God's blessings. Now notice, 2.11. As the Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of his love, so the Spirit came to glorify Christ by revealing to the world the riches of his love and grace. If the Holy Spirit, I'm at line 2.13 now, dwells in us, our work will testify to the fact we will lift up Jesus. Not one can afford to be silent now. The burden of the work is to present Christ to the world. All who venture to have their own way, who do not join the angels who are sent from heaven with a message to fill the whole earth with its glory, will be passed by. Notice that. The work will go forward to victory without them, and they will have no part in its triumph. Okay? She says very serious things here. She says in 2.20, there has been an abundance of slipshod work done. The only conclusion that the world can come to is that those who profess to believe that the end of all things is at hand do not really believe the tremendous truth that Christ is at the door. Okay? Line 2.28. The most grievous sin of idolatry exists in the church. Anything that interposes between the Christian and the wholehearted service to God takes the form 
of an idol. So when we let something stand between us and God, she says, that becomes an idol. She asked the question, 238, is this exclusively addressed to the few individuals who have been ordained to the ministry? No, but to every Christian, young or old, rich or poor, if Christ has forgiven them of their sins, if the truth has made them free, have they not a work to do for the Master? If they are Christians, they will present the truth to others. They will not consider that all they have to do is to serve themselves, live to please and glorify themselves. Sins of a grave character are in our borders. And unless there is an awakening such as we have not seen for some time, which will convict and convert professed Sabbath keepers, they will die in their sins. And the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah will be light in comparison with those who have had great light. How about that? Because we've had so great light, the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah will seem light in comparison to what will come our way. 251, now we see need of workers in the opening fields before us, but where are the men who can be trusted? Men who have been year by year growing into a better knowledge of God. 256, there's a need to ask God with all the heart to elevate the standard, the commonness, the cheapness of conversation, reveal the measure of spirituality of the members of the church. In other words, the way that we talk to other people. He says the commonness and the cheapness of our conversation shows where we are spiritually. And then notice this. Well, let's start at 262. They simply live the name of Christians but are not fitted for the work of God and never will be until they are born again and learn their ABCs in the religion of Jesus Christ. She says we need to learn the ABCs. And this is a shocking statement. There is hope in one direction. Take the young men and women and place them where they will come as little as possible in contact with our churches. That the low grade of piety which is current in this day shall not leaven their ideas of what it means to be a Christian. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Do you think things are dramatically better in our day? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. We continue. 277, we see the need of a deep and thorough work in our churches, but the Lord alone can by His Spirit make the hearts that are steel, soft and sympathetic and true to the service of Christ. We are far behind because the churches have folded their hands in a peace and safety attitude and are, are at ease in Zion, doing almost nothing when the living zeal should be in their hearts as never before. Okay? And I think I'll read just this last little section at the bottom of the page that's underlined too. Jesus has provided for every emergency. If they will walk where he leads the way, he will make rough places plain. He with his presence will create an atmosphere for the soul. He closes the door and brings the soul into seclusion with God. And the needy soul is to forget everyone and everything else. I believe this is speaking of, of that early morning hour. Satan will walk with him but speak aloud to God and he will drive back the hellish shadow of Satan. In other words, Satan will try and disrupt us. With humble, subdued, thankful hearts, they will come forth saving, saying, Thy gentleness hath made me great. The sincere seeker comes forth from the audience with God, rich in the assurance of his love to go forth to distill a heavenly fragrance wherever he goes. He can talk of the righteousness of Jesus. He can talk of the love of God with sincerity. He has tested and he knows the Lord is good. This work is to be done in all of our churches. My brothers and sisters, 
times of wasting. And God has a great concern. Do we care about the people around us? When we have converted hearts, we will. If we don't care, we need new hearts and new conversions. Would you agree? When we are converted, we will love those that Jesus loves and we'll have his burdens as well. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to pray. But remember, in praying and seeking for the new heart, we are not working our way into heaven. We do this out of the love of God extended to us that out of gratefulness we want to extend to others. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.